Uh, like Taylor said, uh, we have an opportunity to learn a lot from kids, and uh, kids teach us so much. And I, I remember, I, I learn a lot from my kids, and it's interesting because Jesus says in that passage where he invites the little ones to come to him, he says um, that your faith must become like a child. And, and so we, there's positive aspects that we learn from our children, like we, we see their faith, their boldness, uh, and, and there's things that I go, man, I would love to step in. There's also areas where I see myself in my kids and I'm going, oh yeah, I do that too. And while they don't have a filter in their young hearts to be able to think through that, I do have a filter, and I'm much more mature, at least I think so, in my thinking, uh, but yet so much of what God wants to grow in me, I, I just see some immaturity, and, and I see immaturity in my kiddos, and I see immaturity in myself, and, and I, by witnessing my kiddos, it helps me see those areas in my, my own self that... that God wants to shape and direct. I saw this earlier this year um, in January. I shared bits and pieces of this. We, uh, we took really what we said was like our first family vacation. We went to Hawaii. It was a dream trip. We had so much fun. And, uh, you know, there's so much to see, travel around the island, to be on North Shore, uh, to be on the Windward side. I mean, we were out there. It was so much fun. And the, the biggest highlight for my kids for the entire trip was the hotel pool, okay? Now, you didn't have to jump on a plane for six hours to go to the hotel pool, but we'd be like, hey, let's go to the beach. And they're like, let's go to the pool. And I'm like, no, you're, you're missing out. Like, you're, there, there's so much more to see. There's so much more to do. Like, let, let's go. And they're like, dad, the pool. And I'm going, we didn't come all the way to Hawaii to see a pool, you know, like there, there's so much more and, but they're satisfied. They're satisfied. When me as their dad wants to give them so much more, wants them to experience so much more. And what I see in this passage that we're going to look at today is how often God the Father wants to lead me to places of greater depth, greater fulfillment, and greater treasure. And I kind of just go, you know what, I'm good. I just want water so I don't have to come back here anymore. And he wants to give us so much more. A famous quote, I've quoted it before, C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's you and I. And there's, there's many aspects of life where we are satisfied with, with some of the, the pleasures of this world and God wants to offer us so much more. We don't even know what else is out there. And what I would take from this passage, and, and as I, I hope to teach us and instruct us and kind of open our eyes to what he's inviting us to, uh, kind of the main point of the day is God is out to satisfy your deepest longings with worship of himself. God is out to satisfy our deepest longings with worship 
of himself. And you may be like, you know what? I've, I've found satisfaction in the hotel pool. It's good. And God is saying, hey, follow me to the ocean. Follow me beyond. He wants to take us on a journey. And so this morning, I want to take us on a journey through this passage and go, how do we get there? How do we see our deepest longing satisfied in Jesus, in him? And uh, the th- three things that stuck out to me from this passage are these. The wounding of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, and the whereabouts of Jesus. Okay, so we're going to walk through this, and we're going to start with the wounding of Jesus. Now, we're going to spend a significant amount of time here because I want to help define this for us this morning, okay? Now, it's not that Jesus is wounded, but that, and it's not that he's out to actually wound us. It's more that he's like putting fingers on our wounds. You know, have you ever had that, that sore and it doesn't hurt unless you touch it and then you just keep touching it? You're like, man, that hurts when I touch it. And then somebody tells you like, well, quit touching it. What, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out and it, it feels like a wound because what these things, a lot of times they, they are, they're, they're hurtful things, they're sinful things. Um, but there, there are areas in our life where, where Jesus just puts his finger and is like, hey, what about this? And this is what I kind of labeled the, the wounding of Jesus. And like I said, we're going to spend a little bit of time. And, and hopefully before I leave, lose you at wounding, like this is good news and I want to kind of lead us there. Um, and so hang in there with me while I define that this morning. Uh, let me start by kind of reminding us where we are in the story. Because if you're jumping in in verse 16, you missed the first 15 verses. And, uh, and so Jesus is leaving Judea. It says that in verse 1 of chapter 4. And he's headed for Galilee. And it says he had to pass through Samaria. And it's not necessarily true that he had to pass through Samaria. Like there's other routes. There's actually safer routes uh, this was not the normal route, but he had to. He had to pass through here. And, and so this is a, a direct uh, God-inspired calling, divine appointment in his life. He has a meeting, and so he's going to Samaria. He comes to a well. He's weary and tired from his journey, and we see in this the, the humanity of Jesus on display. We've talked about uh, the supremacy of Jesus, that he was before all. But here we see uh, Jesus who is weary and tired. And we talked about in our community group this past week, um, like who, when they're weary and tired, want to engage in spiritual matters, right? Like, have you ever been that person and you jump on the 5 a.m. flight out of Salt Lake City, and the person sitting next to you wants to engage in the gospel, and like, hey, what do you do for work? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, really? Like, how'd you get into that? And I'm like, when I was 18 years old, Jesus changed my life, called me into this. Oh, do you want to talk about that for the next three hours? And like, no, I'd actually r- rather nap. Right? Okay. Like, really? I mean, there's a sense. Jesus is weary and tired, but he engages her. And, and, and his intellect is on display, his wisdom is on display, and here he is seeking to make a worshiper out of this woman and lead her to a true and lasting well. That's what we saw. All of us have wells that we're going to to fulfill whatever desires we have. We're looking to things to uh, feel, whether it's relationships, approval, success. We're, we're all seeking things. We're all going to wells to, to fulfill certain desires in our life. And Jesus says, I got living water. 
I got living water. And all the other wells that you go to, you're going to drink from them and you're going to be thirsty again. But I have a well that you will drink from that will cause your thirst to go away forever. And she says, give me this water. Now, anyone who has ever engaged in evangelism in any way, uh, when someone is like, hey, give me this, you're like, all right, right? Like, you're, you're going, hey, you know, have you ever received the gift of eternal life in Jesus? No, I'd love to have that. You're like, okay, great, next step. Like, where are we going? We want to take them. We want to introduce them to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus knows to take her forward, he's got to step back a little bit. To take her forward, he's got to, he's got to point out something. Now, in this story, uh, this, this woman is stuck in the physical reality. She's, she really, and we, we saw that back in Nicodemus in John chapter 3, like Nicodemus was stuck in the physical. He couldn't understand or comprehend the spiritual realities that Jesus was talking about here. And what Jesus is saying is more than any physical needs, you have deep spiritual needs that can only be satisfied in him. And he has to reveal this to her. He's going to have to show her because she, she's stuck in the physical and Jesus is trying to bring her into the spiritual. And so in verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty again. And, and Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered her, I, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband for if you, you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. And he says, what you've said is true. Now, it is true, but it's a half-truth. There is a sense in which she was very protective, and we don't know why. Uh, if, if you've journeyed in church for a long time, I, many commentators and many people who have taught this passage will talk about like possibly the promiscuity of this woman. She has five husbands. Uh, she's coming to the well at noon when women would typically come in the morning and evening. You wouldn't come in the heat of the day, so there's shame. We, we have no idea. The story does not let us in. And I think there's a reason why the story doesn't let us in. It's because Jesus is out to expose, not exploit. Jesus is out to expose sin, not exploit your sin. Satan loves to exploit your sin. Satan loved, and we don't know this woman's name. We don't know this woman's journey. We don't, for all we know, she could have been widowed five times. Now, we don't know the story, but Jesus presses in this area. There is something, and we don't know what it is, there is something about this area of her life that is keeping her from experiencing deep fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus. And he says, for her to drink deeply from this well, we have to go back and deal with this one issue. He exposes. He exposes. There's something here. It, it may have not been because of her choices in life. She may have been sinned against. But even those hurtful things in our life, like there are areas where Jesus just says, hey, I want to I show how I can engage and even heal in the midst of that. He points out these areas. She says, I want this water. Jesus says, go and get your husband. Now, what is Jesus doing? I, I don't think he actually wants to have a conversation with the husband. I, I don't think he's like, yeah, I would like to talk with Bob, see what's going on in his life, see if he wants living water. I don't know that that's the case. I, I don't think the husband 
knows the way to this water. So she's like, hey, where is this water? I'm like, well, maybe Bob, your husband knows. Like, invite him to come. Maybe he'll tell us. I think Jesus is exposing something that is keeping her from finding her full delight in him. Now, I don't know what that is. And I don't know what that is in your life. But I can tell you that for me, there's things that are often presented in my life that keep me from finding my full satisfaction and delight and worship in Him. There's something. And, and those somethings, whatever it is, because He says, go and get your husband. And for many of us, it's go and get whatever it is in your life. Go and bring that thing. I think of the rich young ruler. Like he said, to go and sell all your possessions. Like he's exposing. There's something that's keeping you. You can never fully delight in me if you continue. Like you're finding your delight in all these pleasures and treasures. And he says, hey, you got to go and sell these if you're going to find it in me. Full satisfaction, full worship in me. So he's calling us. He's exposing these things. And when this occurs in our life, it feels wounding. It feels wounding. Jesus isn't wounding us. Jesus isn't doing that to hurt us. Jesus isn't doing that to to find joy in creating pain. But he puts his finger on something to lead you to the greatest delight himself. He is the greatest treasure. And there's something that's holding us back, that's keeping us from experiencing this living water. He has to point out the false wells in our life if we're going to be led to the true well. And so this, this was the language that, that Jesus used. He said, if you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. That's a false well. It will not satisfy. He's pointing out all the things in our life. Jesus has to expose the false wells in our life that show us that they don't satisfy. They don't satisfy. And he, he puts his finger on them. Now, um, in that journey. Um, I don't know of anyone, even including myself, when that finger is put upon whatever that is that's keeping me, that we go, hey, thanks for pointing that out. I, I plan to make changes and report back to you, right? Like married couples, your wife puts a finger and says, you know what? Hey, this area you don't typically go, wow, thank you. You're God's gift to me and, and being able to shape off those rough areas. You're God's sandpaper. Thank you so much for all you do and helping make me more sanctified in Jesus, right? Or that friend that comes alongside. We all know the passage. Like wounds from a friend are better than kisses from an enemy. We don't want flattery, but like wounds from a friend are better I'm like, I don't know. Anytime that's ever happened to me, I tend to react. I don't want to be exposed. I want whatever is there to remain hidden. And we see that in her life that she's not fully revealing of this. And that's why it's important. I want to, I want to help describe to us what wounding is and what wounding isn't, okay? Um, and this was helpful as I began to think about it because I think a lot of times when we think of wounding, we think of condemnation. And what Jesus talks about is conviction. And there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Like he is seeking to bring conviction. Um, He didn't come to condemn. He comes to confront. 
And so Jesus is confronting something in her life. Again, we have no idea why, but there's something in this that he's pointing out. He comes not to condemn. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's important because a lot of times when the finger gets pressed, we feel condemnation. We don't feel conviction. And it's important to understand conviction is the pointing out of sin. Conviction is also the pointing out of false beliefs. There, there, there's some beliefs. We become more convinced in our mind that something is true. Here in the text, a little bit further, he's going to say to the woman, because she gets in this dialogue about where, you know, they say we're going to worship here. They say, and he says, believe me. You need to believe me. If you're going to believe anybody, believe me. And for us, there's a sense of going, we, we've believed other people. We've believed social media. We believe the news. We believe our friends. And, and we've we got to come back into the truth of God's word and go like, oh, there's something. I need to align my life closer. And so conviction is, you know what? My life doesn't look like this. It's out of alignment with the truth of God's word, and I need to bring it into alignment. And so I want that truth to be pushed more deeply into my heart. That's conviction. And, and Jesus keeps putting his finger on this thing. And what, it, what I love about this is he's not accusing. He's not condemning and he's not exploiting. And I think that's the difference between how Jesus convicts us and how Satan condemns us. Ray Ortland uh, used to say this, and well, the Bible says this, John 16, 8. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is, Jesus comes to do this. He will convict the world. He's out to convict us. He's out to put his finger. He's out to show us that thing that's keeping us from finding our greatest delight in him. But it tells us in Revelation 12, 10 what our enemy does. The enemy is the accuser. The accuser. He's the accuser. He's the one accusing. He's the one exploiting your sin. He's the one that is rubbing sin in your face. He's the one out to shame you. He's the one out to condemn you. And it tells us in Revelation, he will be overthrown. And so Ray Ortland says, how can I tell the difference between convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and the accusing attacks of Satan? Let me give you a few because I think this is important. It says, the Holy Spirit puts his finger on a particular sin, something concrete, something he, he shows us very particularly, but the accusations of Satan are vague and simply demoralizing. It's just like, how can we exploit all, you know, and, and it's more of just like, you are a terrible person. That's not what we see in this story. And I, I just think it's the love and posture of Jesus right? The Holy Spirit shows me Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, but the devil wants me spiraling down into negative self-focus. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I messed up. I failed. This, it, it's just constant, but the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. Jesus who covers sin. Jesus who forgives sin. The Holy Spirit leads me to a threshold of new life, but the devil wants me to paralyze where I am. You can never change. You'll always be the same. You'll always have the same faults. You'll always be the same person. This is you. Jesus shows us there's another way. 
He's, he's pointing this out. Not, he's, not, he's not saying, like, let me show you where, like, he wants to show her where she is, but where he wants to take her. The Holy Spirit brings peace of heart along with a new hatred of sin so that I bow before Jesus. The devil offers peace of mind with smug relief so that I fold my arms and say, there, that's over with. Like, how do I just put it away? The Holy Spirit helps me to be so open to God that, I'm, that I allow him to take control of the conversation. But the devil tempts me to take off the table certain questions I just don't want God to talk to me about. And we begin to separate ourselves. This is the difference between condemnation and conviction. Jesus points this out in a loving way. He loves her. He is pursuing her. And he is going after her heart to lead her to a place where she finds greatest delight in him. Can I tell you, church, how how we are wounded? Because we need this in our lives. We need Jesus to put the finger in the areas of our life that we're seeking satisfaction, that we're seeking them to be our treasure, our greatest delight, and and Jesus wants to point those out to us. I think he wants to point those out to us this morning. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut. They were wounded. There was a, it, it was piercing. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And so one of the ways, what was Peter doing there? Peter was doing that through preaching. And so we believe in the context of a preaching environment where the word is taught, God convicts. God puts his finger in areas of our life and says, you know what? Hey, this thing is keeping you from finding your greatest delight and treasure in me. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. What does it do? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes on, and it says, all are naked and exposed before it. Ah, I don't want to be there. But it's like the Word of God. If we spend time in the Word of God, that the Word of God exposes us. It points out areas in our life that says like, oh, hey, what about this area? It pierces, it gets into the the areas of our heart, shows us the underlining motivations of why we do what we do. He wants to do that. And so through preaching, through the word, but also through others. I hope you got some others. And I hope they're from friends. I hope the wounds that you receive are from friends, people who love and trust you um, and who you love and trust and who you know care about you your greatest growth and greatest desire, like leading you to a place of, of finding greatest delight in Jesus. But in James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, it says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Like, I want to be that person who someone brings him back. I don't want to be the person who wanders from the truth, right? Because if I wander from the truth, then I know that there's confrontation that's going to happen. That's uncomfortable. It's wounding. It feels wounding. It feels hurtful. But praise God that there are people that will do that for us. That there are people who can see us and they acknowledge that we're wondering. And they go, oh man, like 
I just feel like there's something wrong. There's something not right. Like your demeanor, your, your I, I just, there, there's something I, I don't feel, I feel like you're stepping away. I feel like you're falling away. I feel like, and I want to run after you and I want to pursue you. And in the same way we see Jesus run after and pursue this woman, that's what we're called to do, to run after and pursue one another. It says, whoever brings him back, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Again, that friend isn't out to exploit, but to expose. That friend comes to say like, hey, uh, man, I see this in your life. I love you. And can we talk about this? Can we engage in this? You come to expose those areas to help find our greatest delight. Again, the purpose isn't condemnation. The purpose isn't to wound. Uh, but we even read in John chapter 15, it says that God the Father is going to prune. He's going to cut off those areas in our life that aren't producing. That's painful. Pruning is painful, but it creates growth, right? It doesn't feel great at first, uh, but he's, he's doing surgery on the heart. He's having to expose that thing, right? Surgery doesn't feel good initially, you're like, hey, I thought you were supposed to help me. You just cut me open and like made things worse, right? But it's like, hey, there's a cutting open that has to, we have to expose that and remove that before we can get to a place of health and healing and flourishing. So what is that thing? The wound that is keeping you, the thing that is keeping you from finding fullest delight in Jesus. Could that be exposed this morning in you? in your heart, not to exploit, not to blast across the room, but to help you, lead you to a place, finding your greatest fulfillment in Him, in Him alone. The second thing, to satisfy his, uh, her deepest longing with worship of Him is the worship of Jesus. So what, what He does here is He reveals the false areas of worship, he points out he has to re redirect our worship, right? So there's a sense of going, I could just say like, hey, stop worshiping that. You are a worshiper. Everyone here, you're like, dude, I just show up to church today for the first time. You're a worshiper. We all worship something. We all find delight in something. But you were created to find your delight and pleasure in God. And, and I quoted Augustine last week that said, you know, our hearts will constantly uh, search and search and search until we find our greatest delight in Him. That was a desire that was put in you by God Himself, that you would seek Him, that you would find Him. And so it's not just stop worshiping that. You have to redirect the worship. The worship has to be redirected. And so verse 19 through 24, Jesus is redirecting her worship, okay? The woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, I want you to see the change in direction here, okay? The woman just said... Um, just found out, he just put, pointed out this area of her life that she was remaining protective in and, and just says, uh, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, you don't. You have five and the one you're with now is not your husband. I see you're a prophet. Okay, that's where we're going. You got to catch that change in, in direction here. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know 
for salvation is from the Jews. Now, that line right there um, has to be, uh, it, it's, uh, that's a shocking statement. Okay, so if you remember last week, and if you weren't here last week, you got to go back and listen. Um, you listen to the long-standing history between Samaritan and Jews, and how they, they, they had two places of worship, and where they worship on Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, and we see this major divide. And here Jesus says, uh, salvation is going to come from the Jews. The Messiah is a Jew. And it's like, all right, she's taking a step back, right? He's redirecting her worship. She's showing, he's showing her what it is we are to worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is brilliant, okay? He's brilliant. Because he takes her redirection, and, and like many of us, anytime something's exposed, we want to deflect and like, hey, you want to talk about theology? Like, let's talk about, you know, like the end times, you know, you premillennialists, you know, it's like, no, hey, let's, let's go back to it. But instead of going like, hey, let's go back, he just takes where she's going and, and just continues to, to turn it over and redirects her worship. He says, hey, let's, you know, like, I think about her, you know, like, hey, why we're on the topic of husbands and uh, you're a prophet. Uh, let's talk about where we should worship. It's like, what in the world? Like, what's going on? Well, that's what you and I do. When things get exposed, we're like, let's change the channel. Let's turn attention elsewhere. Hey, look at that over there. Okay. All right. So you're a prophet. He's a prophet. And in this moment, what Jesus shows is she's fully known. She's fully known. Like, unless you know that you're fully known, you're never going to feel fully loved. Because if there's something that you're holding back, if there's something that you're keeping, if there's something that, that, that you're not, you're going, you know what? He's given me this because of who he perceives me to be, but he's a prophet. He knows everything about me. I'm fully known in front of him. He's exposed that. And Jesus says, to be fully loved, you got to be fully known. And only Jesus fully knows you. And he's not shocked by you. He's not put off by your sin. He's, he's, not running, he, he's not running from your, your mess. Like he engaged in the mess. He stepped in. He wants to save you from your mess. And all of us, and if I can just kind of like clear the air a little bit, like all of you have been saved from a mess. Yeah. We've all been saved from a mess. All of our stories has a, a moment where our worship had to be redirected. We were worshiping ourselves. We were worshiping our job. We were worshiping our spouse. We were worshiping our success, and we need it redirected. And he comes in, and he engages it, and he puts his finger on it, says, your worship needs to be redirected. It's not about like, we're not so much focusing on where we're going to worship. We need to focus on who we're worshiping. He's like, hey, you know what? Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, none of those things are going to matter anymore. We're not focused on where we're going to worship. We're going to focus on who's worshiping because he's seeking worshipers. And we're going to focus on how you worship, worshiping in spirit and truth. 
And so this is where Jesus is pushing her. He's refocusing her direction. He's telling her that she's fully known. I, I listened to a conference this past week. It was a conference that was put out uh, like 12 or 15 years ago. And uh, it, it looked at what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And I like the way that this conference kind of highlighted. It was a whole conference given to this passage. And they talked about it being doctrine and delight. And I love this picture. And so I know there's lots of understandings of this passage, but I'm, I'm going to give you this one for sake of time. Doctrine and delight, okay? There are people who have doctrine. They have truth. They're correct. But they don't delight in that truth, all right? And there are people who are sincere, but it's not truth. They're sincerely, like, confused. But they're passionate, and you're like, oh, yes. You know, they're, they're full of joy, full of energy. And in worship, what Jesus is looking for is, I want there to be truth. I want there to be doctrine. I want there to be revealing and exposing. I want you to be fully known. I want to be fully known. And so I want there to be truth in this relationship. And I want that to stir your affections for Jesus. I don't want it to just be formal I don't want it to just be, you know, this sense of you go to this place and you worship. Worship is not going to be an outward thing anymore. It's going to be an inward thing. It's about your heart. And so he said, I'm seeking for people who will do this. I'm seeking. He is seeking this woman. He's seeking for her to become a worshiper. And he says, to do so, your affections have to be stirred up. Your spirit within you it has to, like, the, the emotions have to match the doctrinal truth. I love, I just picked up uh, G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, and uh, I haven't, this is the first time I've read it. It's a really dense book. It's hard to read, okay? And Indy Wilson wrote uh, this particular one. He wrote the uh, preface to this book. And what I love about it is he said, us who are in kind of the, the reformed, very doctrinally minded church, truth churches, like we hold to our truth. But if we really believe those truths, we would be the people wanting to throw parties about that truth. And so he said what G.K. Chesterton, even though he was an Arminian, what he does is he like turns on the lights, brings the party, and, and it's like we in the Reformed community, those who hold to these doctrines and truths, and I'm not trying to divide anybody here today, but all that to say, it's like, if that's true and you really believe that, then this is what it should do in your worship. And, and what I love about that is, is that these things are married. This idea, God is spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And he says, I'm seeking for those people. He said, you got to believe me. You got to believe me. Do you believe him this morning? Do you believe that, that what he said and what he's calling us to, we got to submit our lives to the truth of who he is. We need to submit our lives to the truth of who we are. We need to come to the reality of going, hey, I want you to expose that. I want you to show me the areas because I do want to find my greatest delight in you. I want to find you as my greatest treasure. I want to be satisfied in you. And when I am, it's going to affect all my body. It's going to affect my emotions, my heart, not loving God with just my mind, but every aspect of my being, that it would move me to a place of worship. He's calling her to delight in him. Here's what John Piper says. Truth without emotion, okay? It produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. 
right? We got the truth. Doesn't get to our heart. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the disciple of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. You ask us like, why do we, why do we spend so much time? Why are we so doctrinally minded? Why do we walk through books of the Bible? Because we believe your affections are not stirred up just by some sincerity of going like, I'm really passionate about this, but it's stirred up by the affections of the truth of God's word. He's, he's calling her to truth. He's wrestling truth out in her. It's saying, hey, you know, our fathers believe this. He says, believe me. And then he comes to a place. Where am I? I got ahead of myself. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem where the people, it's this idea of fathers. And he comes in and he says, well, for the father, capital F, he's seeking these type of people to worship him. And he's, he's reshaping, he's redirecting her worship. It's not about where you worship, it's how you worship. You can be sincere and not be truthworthy. You can be truthworthy and not sincere in your worship. And what he's saying is, I, I want you to come to a place where you know the truth. It can be known where you know the truth about who it is that you're to worship. And then it goes into the the last part, the third part. It's the whereabouts of Jesus. She gets in this conversation, and, and I love, like, we get to read this story, and we know the whereabouts of Jesus. Like, he's going to Samaria, and you're like, why in the world is he there? Well, because it tells us God is seeking worshipers. And so, like, he doesn't go to expose this sin, to exploit it and condemn her. He goes because he wants to make a worshiper out of her. Because he knows when he does so, it will be her greatest delight and satisfaction. The whereabouts of Jesus. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's coming. Did you know he's coming again? He is. He's coming again. The Bible tells us that Jesus, in the same way he went into heaven, ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's coming again. He's someday, he's coming again. But in the meantime, he left his Holy Spirit here to be a helper to us. And he says, it's actually better. It's actually better that I, that I go and I leave the helper. Because what's interesting, we look at this story of Jesus and, and we go like, hey, you know, when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, uh, we'll figure all this out, you know, we'll be able to settle this. And I, I can't imagine. Like, can you put yourself in the story? She's longing for this. She's waiting for this. And she's like, when he comes, when he comes, when he comes, and he looks at her, I'm right here. The Messiah's here. I'm right here. How many of you, I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, don't raise your hands, okay? But when you think about sin getting exposed, when we think about where Jesus is in position, 
we tend to think that if my sin's getting exposed, that he's probably way over there. The furthest. He, but he's not. Where is Jesus in the midst of this? Where is, he's right there. He's present. In the midst of whatever she has going on, he's present. That's how Jesus loves us. That's the depths that Jesus will go to make a worshiper out of you. And he pursues you in the same way that he goes after her. Jesus is not just the person who wounds, but he will also be wounded. Jesus is well aware of your sins. He doesn't expose to exploit. He exposes to express his love for you. He doesn't point out your sin and leave you in it. He doesn't point out your sin and say, good luck in dealing with it. He points out your sin and he says, Sometime, I'm, I'm an, someday I'm going to die for that. What's interesting, I don't have time to go into all the intricacies, but when we look at the, the day in which Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 4, there are like six or seven different similarities in the story of how it unfolds. The hour has come, the sixth hour, Savior, all these, these points are directly taken into John's gospel of where it talks about, and John, I think it's John 19, where it, it talks about the crucifixion. And what I love about that picture And you're like, is that by chance? I don't know. God's the creator of the universe. I think he can probably figure out how to get John to write this in John chapter 4 and John 19. But what it exposes is it directs our attention to John chapter 19 that whatever's getting exposed here, Jesus has come to die for. And that's good news to us. Jesus is not far off. He's very present. He's very near. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. For what purpose? That they would seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And he's not far from from us. He's not far. He's not far. He's very near. He can be found. He's going to be wounded. His body's going to be wounded. For the wounds that you've experienced, for the sin that has been caused against you, for the sin that you commit, Jesus will be wounded. And he tells you that to find your greatest delight in him. Because at, that, at the feet of worship of Jesus is the well of living water. That's where we're satisfied. I'm going to move into our time of response. I'm going to invite Jen to come up and and play underneath just to give us an opportunity to focus and ask God how he would have us respond this morning. There are two things that Jesus commands us to participate in as a church and things that the Christian church has regularly practiced for over 2,000 years. Uh, That's baptism and Lord's Supper. 
Baptism is the outward symbol of the inward heart change. When we're baptized, we go public with our faith, declaring that we are indeed a part of the family of God. And we celebrate this a few times a year uh, here at Church of the Valley. Uh, We celebrate as a person, we're reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When someone goes under the water, they're buried with Christ and they're raised to walk in a new way of life. And then after being baptized into the family of God, one of the ways we regularly uh, are reminded of that is we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so we take the Lord's Supper every week here at Church of the Valley. Lord's Supper, some call it communion. It's an ongoing sign of continued commitment to Jesus. Being reminded that Jesus was wounded for us. Being reminded that all of us have areas of our life that that Jesus died for, and that he pursued us and wants relationship with us. And so we, we're reminded of that when we get to come to the communion table. It's like a regular renewal every single time we get to come back and be reminded of that. And so uh, the Lord's Supper is particularly for uh, members of our church and for guests who are born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ. That's who this meal is for. Uh, As we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of a few things. We're reminded that Christ died. His body was broken. And we remember that together what he has done for us in Christ. And we proclaim his death until he comes. We're reminded that Christ is risen. He's no longer in the grave. We remember together what he is doing even right now because he's alive by the power of his Holy Spirit. And then we're reminded that Christ is coming again. While we've been left with the helper, that Jesus will return. Jesus is coming back for his bride. And we remember and proclaim together what God has promised to do. The Lord's Supper contains two elements, the bread and the cup. And these are talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he gave it, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we see the cup. In the same way, he took the cup after, serve, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, this is how we are called to respond. I'm going to invite our communion servers and prayer team to each of the tables. We have four tables around the room. And at each of these tables, we have the communion elements, the bread and the cup. And there are going to be people present serving us, reminding us of the broken body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus shed for you. But also at these tables this morning, uh, there are going to be people who are present uh, wearing blue lanyards that are available to pray for you, to give encouragement to you. If there's something that you go as simple as, hey, I got this coming up this week, or, you know, this is really pressing, or this is heavy on my heart. People just want to pray for you. They want to encourage you. They want to walk alongside you. And so our prayer team is equipped to pray for you. If you would say this morning, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but if this Jesus that is pursuing after this woman, if he loves her that much, I want to experience that love. I want him to pursue me. He is pursuing you. If you hear his call, today is the day of salvation. And so if today you would want to give your life to follow Jesus, 
our team with Blue Lanyards, they would love to pray for you and encourage you, and they're equipped to help lead you in beginning and taking that next step. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond this morning. Lord Jesus, may all who participate together in this time of response and in the sacred ordinance be blessed by an overwhelming sense of your grace to save us. May we feel your presence with us, that I who speak to you am he, you're here. And may our hope be revived that you're coming again soon for your people. Amen. Let's stand together. The tables are open. Our prayer team is open. We're ready to respond with you. Uh, Let us know how we can pray for you and come and receive of this gift, the broken body of Jesus and the blood for the forgiveness of sins. Amen.